We do serve a great God. Thankful for His grace and His mercy. Thank you for His presence in uh, this place, and I hope you've come ready to be in the presence of God, to hear God speaking to your hearts and transforming you, continuing to do the good work in you that only He can do. We're going to do that as we open up His Word and and dive into the Scriptures, allow His Spirit to mold us and transform us more into His likeness, and just to be a different person, different individual than when we came in here this morning. That's, that's, I hope, the anticipation, the expectation you have is allowing God just to mold and shape you in this moment, the next 30 minutes or so. Um, don't hold me to that. But anyway, um, ha, ha, ha. Uh, we are in the miracles of Jesus, uh, as Jason said, and we're kind of walking through these according to John in the Gospel of John. We've just uh, been walking through these and leading up to the greatest miracle that Jesus ever did, and that was rising from the dead, uh, His resurrection, um, showing that we can be forgiven, that He was more than just a man and a good teacher and a prophet, that He was actually the Son of God. And so we're leading up to that. In this series alone, we're only going to be looking at seven of the eight miracles in the Gospel of John because we're going to spend several weeks just looking in that final week of Jesus' life and His ministry leading to his, his crucifixion and resurrection. Last week we were in John 4. Today we're going to pick up right after the story we left off last week in John chapter 5. And so if you have your scriptures with you, I encourage you to make your way there. In John chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1 and we will read through verse 18 this morning and then we'll kind of walk through this together. So after this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. There is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well and picked up his mat and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. Verse 11, he replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Well, who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked, but the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore that something worse doesn't happen to you. And the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. And therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. And this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And that's kind of what we're walking through as we're looking at these miracles. Is The Gospel of John makes it clear that Jesus came to make God known or to reveal God. He came to show that he is equal with God or, or is the same nature and so John uses these miracles as well as other teachings of Christ and his gospel to amplify that and to reveal that, that people can understand that Jesus is God and he is the son of God. He is of the same nature of God. He is, has this deity. 
Well, in this miracle, we find a transition within the Gospel of John, which we'll discuss here in a moment. But we pick up in verse 1, and it says, after this. And as you're reading through your scriptures, one thing, there, there are certain phrases that help you understand what, what and when something is happening. There is immediately, uh, which tells us it's coming right after that last event. And then there's a phrase like, after this, which doesn't exactly mean immediate after the last healing, which we looked at last week with the royal official son. Um, John lets us know at the end of his gospel that if he were to write everything that Jesus said and did and taught, there would not be enough books in all the world to contain them. See, John was writing on papyrus scrolls, which means he had so much space to write everything down, so he had to rely upon the Holy Spirit to guide and lead him to put into the, the stories and, and the teachings that Jesus had for us to be able to understand who Jesus is. He couldn't go to Walmart or some store and buy a seven-subject notebook. He didn't have a computer to type it up. So John's relying upon the Spirit to give us this story so we can understand who Jesus is, but also our relationship to Jesus and our relationship through Jesus to God and how we can be living that out. We're told that in verse 1 that a Jewish festival is taking place. Some reason John doesn't feel the need to, to tell us which festival it is, though he does on other times. We can probably eliminate one festival for sure. It's, it's probably not the Passover. We're told back in John chapter 2 and John 3 that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover. If you go to a couple chapters later in John chapter 6, we're told once again that the Passover is near. In the very last week of Jesus' ministry, it is the week of the Passover. So we can eliminate that one. It could be Pentecost. It could be uh, the Feast of Booths or, or uh, Tabernacle. It could be some other Jewish festival. What it tells us, though, is that in Jerusalem, there is a buzz going on. There are people amassing. There are people gathering together, and Jesus is here in the midst of it. We're also told there in verse 2 that this event takes place at what is known as the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us in this moment, but as an original first century listener to this gospel, and if you're reading it and you hear the sheep gate in Jerusalem, one thing you would be able to do is like, I know where that is. I know where that place, I could go to that place right now. I could see where that happened until the destruction of the, the temple and destruction of Jerusalem. This was a physical place people could go and they could visit and they could be there. It is a place where they would bring the sheep in for the temple sacrifices. And so it was at this place where Jesus gathers and we find all these disabled, they're blind, they're lame, and they're all gathered around, probably some of them propped up on these colonnades or these pillars. And we found through excavations, this, this pool here is now called St. Anne. And through excavations, we found it's a double pool where there'd be two pillars on each side and one right in the middle. And so you find all these people just waiting and they're believing that something miraculous is going to happen as they wait and as they look out and they can see, there's the temple. There's the presence where God dwells. And here I am as an outcast, a downtrodden in society, someone that's probably forgotten, someone that's looked over. This disabled man, we don't, we're not told what made him disabled. We are told he wasn't born this way. John makes that emphasis in other, in other miracles that happen. That something happened in his life and for 38 years he's been relying upon someone else to bring him to this place, to drop him off as maybe they go off to the temple and they go worship God and they go offer sacrifices and he's there. And maybe they come pick him up at night and take him home, but he's just there waiting to die. And yet we find the Son of God coming to this place where the blind, lame, and paralyzed are. 
and he sees this individual. And why all these people are gathered here, uh, you, you can look if you have your scripture there in chapter 5. If you look, verse 3 says, Within these lay a large number of disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And the next verse you probably read is verse 5, not 4. That's not a typo. There's a reason for that. And if you want to look probably down at the bottom of your page, there's going to be a little uh, comment box about what that passage at the end of verse 3 and verse 4 said. It says, Waiting for the moving water because an angel would go into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. And then the first two got in after the water were stirred up and recovered from whatever ailment he had. These verses, the end of verse 3 and verse 4, are omitted because they're not found in the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of John. And so what that tells us is John did not write that. John did not put that in there. And Jesus makes no mention of an angel coming or the magical powers of this pool that this man is waiting for. He doesn't talk about anything like that. What Jesus understands is here's this individual sitting here, waiting to die, hoping for something miraculous to happen. And so Jesus approaches him and he asks him a question. Do you want to get well? And this is the first miracle that we have seen where Jesus takes the initiation in the miracle. We go back to the water to wine. It was Mary, the mother of Jesus, who came to Jesus and said, look, they're out of wine and do whatever he tells you. We go back to the royal officials in the last chapter. We see it was the royal official pursuing after Jesus, saying, my son is, is dying. He's sick. Please come. But here, here's the very first time where Jesus takes the initia- initiation or the initiative and speaks to this individual. And it says that Jesus came to him and saw him And he realized he had been there for a long time. That's something we can read over so easily. But we've got to remember in this day and age, there was not such thing as like social services. You know, if you were handicapped, you were blind, you were lame, you were disabled, you were considered an outcast. This man had never been into the temple. Well, he's not for the last 38 years. This man was sat here with other individuals probably feeling insignificant, probably feeling that no one really cares, hoping for something to happen in his life that would change the situation. And as he looked out and saw people going to the temple and worshiping God, I imagine he just felt alone. He'd have to rely on someone to take care of him, someone to watch after him. And then here's Jesus coming into his life, asking him one simple question, do you want to do it well? Now, I always read Scripture and questions begin coming in my mind. And my, one question came in my mind is, why did Jesus notice this man? We're told that there are other individuals at this pool. Why did Jesus stop at this man and ask him specifically if you wanted it well? And as we go through this, what we're going to see is this, this man ignited the fuse that led to the cross. And no, all the other miracles tell us is something, you know, exciting happened, what this man does is completely churn on Jesus in, in the end. But then it led me to another question. Why did God notice me? Why did all of a sudden one day I had this eye-opening, this heart-moving experience where I understood that there's a God who created the heavens and the earth and he loves me? Because I don't know about you, but I've been in life where I've, I've shared the love of God. I've, I've been in conversations with people and they just are, they're just defensive. They're opposed to it. They don't want anything to do with it. Why did I 
get that blessing in my life? Why did I get that grace? I don't really have an answer for it, but I do know that God loves me. And I do know that I am a sinful mess. And I need God every single day. This man, like us, did not deserve this interaction. This man did not deserve Jesus to come and, and have this encounter with him. He didn't understand who Jesus was. Matter of fact, he even admits that I have no idea who the man was that told me to get up. He just told me to get up, so I did. It wasn't until later that Jesus comes back into his life. Nowhere in this story do we find that this man believes. At the water to wine, we find that the disciples believed who Jesus was. When the royal official's son was healed, we find not only did he believe, but his entire household believed. But this man shows only one act of faith, and that faith is not leaving to understanding who Jesus was, let alone believing who Jesus was to be. I believe we can look at this man and we can see ourselves that, like him, we've received an undeserved blessing. We received an undeserved blessing from God. Jesus came to this man, we don't know why, and we don't need to know why. But he knew who this man was. He knew his situation. He knew what he was going through day in and day out, just like God knows who you are. Just like God knows what you're dealing with, what you're struggling with, what you're wrestling with. But like this man, what we can do in our own relationship with God is not to rely upon the love of God and the grace of God, but we can feel like we've got to work our way for God to do something miraculous in our life. We've got to work our way for salvation. This man, he said, I can't get in there because I can't, I can't get the strength. Everyone gets in my way. I can't get there in time. But the Bible says you are saved by grace. You're saved by grace through faith, and it's not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. So when Jesus asked this man, do you want to get well, it could seem insensitive. I mean, if you were sick you, and someone said, hey, I can make you better like that, you'd probably take it. But what Jesus is really asking this person is, do you really want this? Is this something you really want in your life? The power of God to invade that. Because it will change you. Do you really want this? And the man's response in, in, in receiving this power, receiving this healing, is that Jesus can do what he could not do for a good portion of his life. And that's what God wants to do in you and me. He wants to do things in our life that we would not be able to do on our own, in our own power. He wants to invade that. He wants to change us. And so when it comes to our salvation, we can be like the man. We try to muster all, of our, muster all of our strength. We try to be good enough, be religious enough, go to church enough. We try to come up with this, this reason of why we should be saved. But when it comes to this miracle, what we see, it's not about us. It's about Jesus coming into our life and asking this question, do you really want this? Because if you accept this gift, it is going to change you. It's going to change every aspect of your life. It's going to change how you perceive things, and it's going to change how people are going to perceive you. And at that moment, this man had to make a, a faith moment. Again, he didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know what Jesus could do. He didn't know what he had in mind. But what we see is that he accepted the blessing that God brought into his life. Now, just play with me for a moment. 
If we were all there that day, we're all lames and blinds and beggars and, and disabled individuals, and we're all leaning against our wall or our pillar, and you see this man coming up to one individual saying, do you want to get well? And they're having some sort of dialogue, some sort of conversation, but the next thing you know, this man that you've seen for all the time you've been there, and, and he says he's been there 38 years, he automatically gets up and walks out, and we're all there. We're all just kind of, we're, 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 we have some sort of disability going on. Wouldn't you want to raise your hand like, do me next? Me next. But Jesus doesn't do anything else next. Matter of fact, the scripture says he kind of slips through the crowd. And when we come to this man, when, when he, is, he is in this situation and he's carrying his mat, these individuals come into his life and, and we find that he has this, this first issue with accepting the power of God in his life. And, and he couldn't, he couldn't experience it the way God wanted him to experience, the way we've seen the water to wine experience, the way we've seen the royal official son in his household experience. He was immediately attacked by this group called the Jews, which would be the Jewish leaders of the temple. And what it kept this man and what can keep you and I from experiencing and seeing the blessings and the power and the love and the faithfulness and the grace of God is our excuses and our blame. Look at this man. Jesus says, verse uh, 6, do you want to get well? And what does the man say? Yes, please, make me well. No. What does he say? I've been here for 38 years, almost 14,000 days. I've sat at this pool. I couldn't find the strength to get there when the water stirred. And the reason why I couldn't do it is because it's everyone else's fault. I try and they get in before me. See, the reason the end of verse 3 and verse 4 are omitted is because it was a Jewish superstition. Someone came in and edited that and put that in. They believed that, see, this, this pool was over a natural spring, so the waters would bubble every now and then. And, and they had this superstition that the angels would come and they would stir the water. If you got in at the right time, all would be well. Jesus makes no mention of that power. But this man believed it. But the reason he couldn't get in, it wasn't his fault. Look, Jesus, I'm here. I'm in the right place. I'm at the right time. Just everyone else gets in my way. Everyone else keeps me. It's everyone else's fault. It's, it's this, this situation I find myself in. It's this circumstance that I'm, I'm in. It's, it's all that. And so he blames everything else. And I can't count how many times I've heard people say why they can't be saved. Why they can't accept God's love for them. Well, you know, I probably need to go to church more before I do that. I probably need to know more about the scripture before I do it. I just need to get some of these things figured out in my life or I need to get some of these things out of my life. I need to straighten myself up a little bit. And we all come up with these excuses and you've probably heard these excuses. And all the excuses say, just like this man, is I have to do something in my life before salvation can come. I have to do something before the power of God can be manifested and I can be changed. But the reality is Jesus comes to this man and he didn't have to do anything. He didn't even have to believe who Jesus was. Jesus just gave him a blessing. He gave him a gift. So Jesus reveals it's not about what you or I can or can't do. It's about what God has already done. That's why scripture says, for God so loved the world, for God so loved you. He so loved every individual in your life. And he did in this way that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. See, it's not about us. It's about God loves you. And you may be here today and you may be wrestling. You know, I don't, I don't know if I can join a church. I don't know if I can be a Christian. I don't know if I can be saved. You're right. 
You can't. Because you don't have the power to do it, but that's the beauty of the gospel. It's not about you and me. It's that God stepped in and he loved us. He saw us just waiting to die. And he stepped in and invited us into a relationship. Jesus reveals an important thing right here in chapter 5. Again, it's not about what we can or can't do, but it's what God can do and has done for us. It is God who saves. It is God who frees. It is God who empowers. It's God who guides. God who provides. God who blesses. It's all Him. That's why we sing, how great is our God? Because it's all about Him. Yet I've also seen people who have accepted Christ and they come up with the same reasons, these, these excuses and these things to blame. Well, you know, God, I don't, I don't know that God would want to use me in that way. I, I don't know. Again, we can come up. I don't think I know enough about the Bible to be used in that manner at the church or used for God's kingdom and used for God's glory. There's no doubt when I look in Scripture that God calls these people who don't deserve to be used, but he wants to use them. He wants to empower them. He wants to use you. Whether you're young or old, male or female, God wants to put you into his mission plan that his kingdom would come and his will would be done in your life and out of your life so other people would know that he is God and they can come to a saving knowledge of grace and salvation just like you have. It's not about your resume and whether God can use you or not. It's about your willingness. But a lot of us can make excuses. I remember growing up, there were two songs. My mom was always the music leader because my dad was the pastor. There's two songs I can remember her singing and I don't know why these two songs, and I can't remember the name of one, but it was something about a squirrel going berserk. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Squirrel going berserk in some, some sort of church, and everyone's jumping up, shouting, hallelujah, right? You can look it up on Google later. Um, there is a video for it. It's kind of funny. Uh, I remember that one, and I never knew why she sang that song, besides it was just maybe to lighten the mood. But there's another song she sang a lot, or at least I remember, and it's called Excuses. Excuses, excuses, we use them every day. Now, I can relate to that one. What excuses have you been using to get out of what God's wanting to do in your life? This man was full of excuses. He, he blamed the other people at the pool. And then when he gets healed, he gets healed, he picks up his mat and he walks out he believes this man, he doesn't know, he doesn't, he doesn't know who he is, he, he doesn't even know where he came from, but he believes in the word. Maybe he thought he was an angel. I don't know, but he believes and he gets up and carries that and he knows exactly what happens next. Verse 10, and so the Jews said to the man, because he's carrying his mat, I haven't walked in 38 years, huh? you better believe I'm walking out of here. And he's walking out, carrying his mat, and the Jews, which means the Jewish leaders, to be at the temple site. They come to this man and say, why are you doing that? Don't you know it's the Sabbath? You're breaking the law of God. It amazes me that here are these Jewish people. They are so blinded because they box God in that they can't see the wonders of God right in front of them. They don't even give this man an opportunity to speak. This is what God just did. They immediately pounce on him. And they were interpreting the law, right? I mean, God said that the, the Sabbath is holy. You shouldn't do any work on the Sabbath. But the thing is, is they were interpreting what work was and what work wasn't. 
And so they were amplifying, adding to the law of God, and, and they were making God into their man-made traditions, God into their box. And because they put God in their box of what he could and couldn't do, it came to reality that when God did something, they were so blinded to it, they couldn't see it. I wonder how many of us here today have boxed God in. This is what God does. This is where God works. This is where God moves. This is where people are saved. We box God into where he can be and what he can do to become so blind into the blessings that God wants to put in our life. So blind into some of the blessings he's put right in front of us, but because that's not what God would do, we miss it. You know, God wouldn't allow dancing in church. <laughs> God... God God wouldn't allow you to play games in church. God wouldn't allow that. God, God doesn't worship that way. God doesn't use those sort of instruments. I don't know where you, I've, I've heard all of these. God doesn't do that. God doesn't wear hats in church. And God wears pants in church, not shorts. So we can box God in. And you may be here and you're wrestling. Oh, I can't believe they, they're doing that. And you're becoming blinded to the blessing that God wants to bring in your life. And blessing he's putting right in front of you. And we can do it in the world. Well, God wouldn't look like that. He wouldn't talk like that. And we could put God in this box and we just miss it. But notice what happens. Like, who, what are you doing? You, you're carrying your mat. The law prohibits you in verse 10. The man said what? The man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. He didn't say the devil made me do it, but he did say that, I don't know, this guy told me to pick up my mat, so I picked up my mat. What is he doing? It's not my fault. It's not my fault. It's that, that guy. Find that guy. That's, that's why I'm, I'm doing this. It's because that guy told me to do it. But we see something right here. Even though this man believed in Jesus' word, even though he believed in the power of God and then he stepped out on faith and it happened. What we see is the world does not understand when God moves in our life. The Bible never says Christianity is going to be a cakewalk. As soon as this man believed in the power of God, what happened? He was attacked. And there are going to be people that are going to attack your walk with God, attack your faith in God, and they're going to pounce on you. And they're going to be outside the church and inside the church. And what can happen is you and I can be just like this man is that we become more concerned about our well-being than our witness. And so unlike the royal official son, his household didn't believe. We're not told that. This man didn't even come to a point of belief. And so if we become so concerned about what people think or what they say, or, we're probably going to be more concerned about that than about sharing our faith with people. And letting God come out and be glorified in our life. The miracle doesn't really end there. It probably could. But the man says, I don't know who did it. This man told me, and we're told that Jesus kind of slipped away in the crowd. He's good at doing that, by the way. Coming in and out. Getting away. Well, Jesus comes back. I don't know why he comes back. But he comes back to this man in verse 14, and he finds him. Notice where he finds him in verse 14? In the temple. 
Here's a man, the sheep gate would have been along the, the outer wall, the north side of the temple. Here's a man, this is where he lived for 38 years, just looking at the temple, probably as a Jewish man, hoping I could be there. And when Jesus comes back, we're not told how long of a period of time it was, but he comes back and he finds this man in the temple. This man is now in a place where the Jews believe the presence of God dwelled. And what we see is that what Jesus does in our life, it changes our position before God and it changes our location to God. And we may not fully understand it, just like this man didn't fully understand what happened, but Jesus comes to this man and he he makes this strange comment, which we'll get to in a second. This man is healed. He's now in the temple And what we see when Jesus comes to this man in verse 15, after Jesus leaves, the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus. Jesus did this to me. Because it's such a bad thing. What's he doing again? Look, I told you, some guy told me, and now, so you're not mad at me. You can know that it's Jesus that did this. Jesus made me well. Jesus blessed me. Jesus changed my location. Jesus changed my position before God. Jesus did it. It's all Jesus' fault. And can't we do that in our own life? God, why are you doing this? See, this man, he didn't understand it. And that's why I don't understand. Why did Jesus go back? Why did he go back and reveal himself to this man? If the reality of what's going to happen is that in verse 18, the Jews began trying all the more to kill him being Jesus. That's all that came about this, is that people became more mad at Jesus and they wanted to kill him. They began coming up with this plot and this scheme on how we're going to kill him. The only thing I can come up is what Scripture says. Jesus looked to the cross. And Hebrews 12, 2 said, and it was the joy of, that lay before him. Jesus was looking to the cross and understanding this image of this man who's got a change in relationship and location to God, that that is why I'm here. I came here for the cross, and if I have to use this man who is ungrateful and unthankful and wants to blame everyone else and excuse himself from all things, if this is the instrument that God is going to use, then I look to the cross with joy before me because this is the plan. This is the whole reason. Paul wrote to Romans that, therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith and disgrace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This man changed, had his positions changed by Jesus just like we have our relationship with God changed by Jesus. But there's an interesting verse there in 14. Jesus says, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. What? (laughs) What does that mean? There was this belief that the reason someone had a disability or an ailment in their life is because they had some sort of sin in their life and God was bringing judgment. We know that Jesus' disciples felt that way too. When they came across a blind man, they asked Jesus, hey, is it this man's sin or his parents' sin and for the reason he's in, the condition he's in? And Jesus says, no. This man is like this for the glory of God. He discredits that. But a statement in verse 14 makes it sound like, okay, wait, if I sin, if I sin, I'm going to have something worse than when I was. 
a sinner and not in the presence of God and not a child of God? What in the world is, is Jesus, Jesus saying? He's, is he contradicting himself? What Jesus is implying to this man and what it's teaching us today is, is first of all, we know this man, at least John doesn't tell us, this man was born disabled. We just know that 38 years he's been the way he is. And what the implication here in the Greek means is Jesus tell, is telling this man and revealing to us that there was something this man did, whether as a young adult, a teenager, or sometime in his life, he did that put him in the circumstance he was in. Some, something he did outside of the will of God that put him in whatever situation he found himself in for the last 38 years. And so Jesus is saying, you know what? You know why you were there. Don't do that anymore so something worse doesn't happen to you. But what it says to us is because I do believe once we come to a saving knowledge of faith, once we accept Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, I believe we are saved and, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. I believe that. That's what Scripture says. But what it does reveal to us is when I come to that knowledge, when I come to that faith, when I understand who Jesus is and that God loves me, that there is a proper way I should be living. There is a proper way in which I should be responding to the grace of God, to the love of God. There's a proper way I should be living out my life. Jesus asked this man or tells this man, you know, don't sin anymore so that something worse won't happen to you. What he's ultimately saying to him is, this is where you are because what I have done for you, now what are you going to do with this gift? And I think that's the same question we have to ask ourselves today. If we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we've accepted his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, the question before us now is, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? Are we going to allow it to change us, to mold us and shape us more into the image of God? Are we going to go back to our old ways? And that's always an issue in life, that stumbling and that falling. Paul wrote that just one thing to Philippians, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul was not saying this. You and I have to live a certain way in order to prove that I'm saved. Though the Bible says I should be bearing fruit. Paul was not saying you and I have to continue to do the right things in order to keep it. It's a gift. He was not saying you and I have to do certain things in order to earn this salvation. What he was saying is that I should be living differently in response to my salvation. I should have a heart of gratitude. So what keeps us from doing that? The same thing that kept this man. Excuses and blame. Couldn't get healed because he couldn't get his way to the pool in time. It wasn't his fault that he was carrying his Sabbath. Some guy told him to do it. When it came to getting in trouble to clear his name, he blamed it on God. And we can do the same thing. We can blame our others for the situation, the position we're in. We can excuse our own actions and our own thoughts and, and the own, our own things we do in our life because it's, it's someone else's fault. It was just a circumstance I found myself in. If you were there, you would have done the same thing as I did. And so we can 
get all blame off of ourselves and we can look at our circumstances or a lot in life and we can, we can blame others. We can blame our parents. We can blame our brothers and sisters, our teachers. It's just the where I grew up. It was the town I lived in. It was, it was just the way things were at that time. It was everyone else's fault but mine. And maybe it was even God's because, you know, God put me there. But the reality, when I come to Christ, I have to understand that it is only me to blame. When I stand before God in the end, it's going to be my actions, my words that are going to be laid bare before God. I'm not going to be judged by mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or aunt and uncle or brother or sister. I'm going to be judged upon what I have done with this gift of salvation I have been given. And I'm not going to be able to stand before God and say, well, you know, it's so-and-so's fault or so-and-so's fault or this was happening. And or God, you know, you just didn't give me enough so I could, I could do what I needed to do. God's going to say, you know what, it was on you. I gave you everything you need for godliness. It was on you. What excuses are you giving God? What blame are you trying to cast on others? I understand people do things that are ungodly and that impact us, but we control our reactions. We control what we do in that situation. We are either light or we just blend in with the darkness in that situation. What are you trying to excuse yourself from? Oh, God, that just doesn't make sense that you would want me to do that or be a part of that ministry. That doesn't make sense you want me to help out in the nursery. I don't even like kids. That doesn't even make sense you want me to do that. That doesn't make sense you want me to give more money to the church. You know where I'm struggling already. God, this is too hard and this other way is too easy. But as we talked about in Bible study, wide and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And sometimes the easy way though it may be permissible, is not the most beneficial. What excuse are you trying to make? And this reality hit me this week. A heart of blame and excuses can blind us to the blessings of God. And the place of why God can blind us to the wow of God. I had to learn this reality about seven years ago. Not seven. Seven? Maybe seven. I've shared before that, you know, churches sometimes can be funny. And, and we've, Jamie and I have seen some, we'll just call them funny. Um, but I was at a church and just uh, with, for some reason, I was, I was asked to go. No longer be there. Wouldn't give an explanation. Um, really behind the scenes type things. You know, it seemed like a, maybe one or two people knew what was going on. Um, some people thought I was leaving because I was being called somewhere else. I mean, there's just a lot of things going on. And, and my heart took the blame and excuse route. God, why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting these people get away with this? Why don't you step in and why don't you bring the fires that you brought at Sodom and Gomorrah down? Why don't let your light shine and reveal what is going on? God, why don't you do something? And I started coming up with all these excuses. Well, you know, that, that church is just, they're just all full of lost people. I didn't know they were wrong. Well, you know, and I started doing it, and I started blaming excuses. And, all, and, and here's what happened. This is my personal experience. 
It happened in January. Little Abby just turned one. And I had from January to May to be a stay-at-home dad, to spend these precious months with not only Abby, but Ethan after he went to a little morning daycare session, these precious hours that I will never get back, of just being with my kids, crawling around on the floor, laying on the floor, rolling on the floor. And in the midst of that time, I was wrestling. This is my confession. I was wrestling because I was mad. And I was blaming everybody else and excusing everybody else and, and excusing myself. And I was mad and I was missing the blessing that God had put right in front of me. Here's some time with your kid that if you were in full-time ministry, you would not have because let me tell you, when you're in ministry, you're just pulled every sort of direction. Here's some time in the ministry where you're not having to read the Word of God and think about how am I going to teach this to someone else. Here's a time you can just read it and you can allow it to soak into you. Here's some time you can be on your knees for your family and yourself and you can, you can just kind of be selfish and coming before me. And I had this moment and looking back now, I see the blessing, but when I was in the midst of it, I was so mad. I was blaming and I was excusing and I was blinded to that blessing. Now, I don't know what situation you find yourself in right now, but I can guarantee you this. If you're living with a heart of blame and a heart of excuses, you're being blinded to the blessings that God wants to put in your life. God wants to bless your children. That may not be material. That may be the blessing of knowing Him more, of understanding His will better, of discerning His truth more. That may just be falling more head over heels in love with him. That may be the blessing you're missing, but I believe that's the blessing most of us want, and that's our heart's desire, and we don't even know it sometimes. What excuses are you given? What anger are you holding on to? How's your heart? How's your heart? <clears throat> Maybe you're here today, and you're like this man, and You've been giving God excuses and why you can't do what God is obviously telling you to do. Are you willing to just let that go aside? Stop giving God excuses and just come before God and say, all right, Laney's at your feet. I'm yours. The promise of Scripture is that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy but it will be the best. Perhaps you're here today and you need to experience a miracle in your own life. Maybe you've just been sitting and watching the world go by and wondering, what is this church thing about? What is this Christianity thing about? What is this God stuff about? Maybe you're here this morning and you need to experience the greatest miracle that ever happened. There is a God who created the heavens and the earth, everything into being, spoke it and formed man into his own image, created you and me for a relationship with him. There's a God who loves you, is for you, who knows everything about you. There's not a thing in your life that is hidden. There's not a thing that God looks at you like, whoa, when did that happen? God knows it all. It's written in his book. And God has brought you to this moment, brought you to this place to extend a gift of love, a gift of invitation to you that you would accept this love through Jesus Christ. What that means is I have to come before God and understand, you know what, I'm a sinner. 
mean I'm a sinner, mean I fall short of what, what I should do at times. And let me just tell you, there's not a person in this room who doesn't wrestle with sin. So you're not alone. But I'm a sinner and God knows I'm a sinner. And I can't do anything. I can't get this sin out of my life. I can't make it better on my own. I don't have the power, but that's when Jesus steps in right here, right now, just as he stepped in with this man. And he says, do you want to get well? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be free? The Bible says that if I understand that I fall short and I can't do it on my own, but I believe that God loved me that much to send his only son to die for my sins. And he died on a cross like a criminal. He had the, the wrath, the punishment of God poured upon him. What I deserve, Jesus held out his hands and said, God, blame me for them. And Jesus took that for me and they put him in a grave, but he rose again. And if I believe that God loves me that much that he would send his son to do that for me, and I believe that he rose again, I can be forgiven. The Bible says I believe it in my heart, but I have to confess it with my mouth. I have to publicly let it be known. And this is the moment. Jesus comes before you in this moment and says, are you ready? Are you ready to accept my gift? And if you know that's where you are and that's where you need to be because you're not saved, you're lost, you're, you're heading for hell and, and God's given that opportunity to change that, we're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to invite you to come down and say, hey, Pastor Mike, I want Jesus. That's all you got to say and we'll talk and we'll pray. It'll be beautiful. Maybe you're here this morning, you've already done that. You've already accepted Christ. You're, you're living for Christ. You're in the midst of this battle going on inside of you, this war waging. But you know you've been having excuses. You've been giving to God and why you can't do what He wants you to do or you've been blaming others for why you're in the situation you're in. And you just need to come before the Father and lay that at His feet and say, you're sorry. Trust me, God already knows. Don't worry about what anyone else may think if you were to kneel before your loving Heavenly Father here this morning. Don't fear man, but fear the God who sends souls to hell. However you need to respond, now is the time to respond. The Bible tells us in James chapter 1, verse 22, that we should be doers of the word, not hearers only. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you. It's not by anything we deserve. We don't even have to have figured out. We don't even have to even have you all understood, Lord. We just have to believe you and trust you at your word that you came to save a sinner like me. Thank you for that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness. And Lord, I pray for the individuals here this morning that need to accept that in their life. They need to accept this invitation, this gift of love, this salvation. Father, you give them the strength and the courage just to walk out of the Lord. Let your spirit just come upon them in such a way that they, they can't stay where they are. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are like me that have, have given excuses and have tried to cast blame for what you're wanting to do in our life and how you're wanting to mold and make us in more into your image. Father, I repent. I repent for not trusting you and trusting something I can figure out. Something that's just easier. It's not walking by faith. Lord, I repent. Forgive me. Let us come before you as your children, knowing that you love us and you discipline us in this moment because you love us and because we're yours. Thank you, Lord.
Thank you. Give us we failed you in any way in this time. As we come to a moment of response, let us respond in spirit and in truth, for that's what you're seeking from us in this moment. Pray us all in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.